0: Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. This is Last Week in the Church, the weekly show devoted entirely and rigorously to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know. Here's what we've got on this week's lineup. Pope to Cardinal... How about no? The Vatican's money problems. Again. The Vatican Bank comes clean. Again. On POTUS and the Pontiff. And finally, the Vatican Librarian you absolutely need to know. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. Okay. First of all, I need to apologize in advance because I am a huge fan of the Mike Myers-Austin Powers series of movies and that how about no meme is just one of my absolute favorites and there are several stories this week that kind of unleash it. So you're probably going to be getting it more than once during the course of this show. If that is annoying or grating, I apologize. But we begin with the, the Pope's biggest no lately, anyway, directed to, in this case, Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich in Germany. Now, Cardinal Marx sort of rocked the Catholic world last week with his surprise resignation as the Archbishop of Munich and Freising. And what made it so stunning was that this was not the typical case that a cardinal is resigning in disgrace. Cardinal Marx has not himself been accused of the sexual abuse of anybody, nor really has he been accused of mishandling abuse cases. Instead, he simply looked around uh, at the sort of sorry state of things and said, somebody needs to take corporate responsibility. We're churchmen. We were part of a generation that produced this mess. I'm going to step up. Uh, and offer my resignation, even though I personally am not in anybody's crosshairs, uh, as a, a step, a gesture towards kind of corporate accountability. Now, that move was widely hailed by victims, by reformers, on newspaper editorial pages as a kind of long overdue sort of acknowledgement of the corporate failures of the Catholic Church in this regard and the need for somebody to take responsibility. That resignation, however, uh, this is the thing about the Catholic system, Uh, bishops don't get to resign of their own accord. Uh, It's not like they can just quit. All a bishop can do is submit his resignation to the pope and then it is up to the pope whether to accept it or not. Uh, Now, uh, in this case, uh, the answer that came back from Pope Francis in a poignant, heartfelt, personally written letter uh, in Spanish uh, essentially was no. Uh, Pope Francis praised Cardinal Marx for the dignity uh, with which he's conducted himself. Uh, His commitment to the reform cause when it comes to clerical sexual abuse said that his uh, rhetoric uh, and his desire to serve the aims of accountability uh, and transparency are are exactly the right ones uh, and said, I want you to continue pressing for reform uh, along that path and specifically I want you to continue pressing for it as the Archbishop of Munich and Freising. Uh, In other words, uh, despite basically a week of tumult and ferment and speculation about what all this may mean, at the end, uh, we're basically back where we started. Uh, Reinhard Marx at the age of 67 is still the Archbishop of Munich and Freising, will be for the foreseeable future. Uh, He remains uh, one of the Pope's key allies uh, in Europe and in global Catholic affairs. No indication that that is going to change. If anything, this episode has probably boosted his stock with the Pope that he serves. Now, is any of this truly surprising? At one level, probably not. Uh, Frankly, a lot of bishops off the record will tell you they found the whole thing a little weird Uh, I mean, a bishop is supposed to be the father to his diocese. You don't walk away from fatherhood just to make a point. Uh, And so that struck them uh, as a little bit, just, you know, hanky from the very beginning. Uh, In addition to that, uh, you know, there was no indication here uh, that Pope Francis was unhappy with Marx. On the contrary, every indication that he was quite Satisfied with Marx's performance. The only reason that I thought that this might not play out exactly this way uh, is because uh, there is a danger, of course, that some people are going to think this whole thing was a publicity stunt from the very beginning. Marx turns in his resignation, there's a deal with the Pope, the Pope says no. Uh, Marx and the Pope look good, uh, but nobody takes a hit. All right? So, you know, if you're a cynic, uh, there might be that temptation. Uh, I actually thought perhaps another scenario would be that Pope Francis would accept Cardinal Marx's resignation from Munich, uh, but in short order, give him some important Vatican gig, like perhaps naming him as the new prefect of the congregation for bishops uh, here in the Vatican. But the thing is, these are not mutually exclusive scenarios. Uh, Again, Cardinal Marx is only 67. Uh, It may well be. Uh, that Munich and Freising uh, is not the last chapter in his story. Finally, we should remember there is another shoe waiting to drop. The Vatican is currently investigating the Archdiocese of Cologne in Germany because a report there commissioned by the Archdiocese documented the scope uh, of clerical abuse and also the apparent mishandling of a number of cases. A similar report about Munich uh, is due to be released this fall. Uh, Now, it may well be that that report will contain negative information uh, about the handling of abuse cases uh, in the Archdiocese on Cardinal Marx's watch. If that's the case, uh, we may be revisiting his future. Uh, But for right now, uh, he remains fully in charge. And and therefore, this story goes down as one of the more interesting non-resignations in recent Catholic history. All right, secondly, the Vatican's money problems again. Last week, the Vatican got its long awaited latest report card from MoneyVol. That's the Council of Europe's anti money laundering and financing of terrorism watchdog unit. In other words, it's watchdog on financial crime. The Vatican has been reviewed by MoneyVol since 2009 under Pope Benedict XVI. This was the latest report card. This is very important to the Vatican because if you are not on Moneyball's whitelist, okay, if they give you a really bad grade, then you can be seen as a financial pariah. You can be frozen out of international currency markets and banking circuits. Where you can get in, you may have to pay extraordinary transaction costs to cover the due diligence, the perceived due diligence risk. And at a time when the Vatican is already swimming in red ink, it simply can't afford it. So this was a big deal. Uh, It also came after shakeups at the Vatican's own financial watchdog unit after the London scandal broke and so on. Uh, So there were a lot of question marks. Basically, it was a mixed report card. Money vol gave the Vatican uh, grades of substantial compliance On five of 11 key measures moderate compliance on the other six compares reasonably with what other European states get it's a kind of middle of the pack uh, assessment had a lot of nice things to say about uh, the performance of the Vatican Bank we will come to that in a moment however money of all also did some knuckle wrapping in two key areas one uh, as part of the ongoing Vatican reform between the last moneyval report and this one the Vatican conducted what is known as a general risk assessment this is something that states have to do to try to identify where their risks of money laundering and financial crime come from basically the Vatican's conclusion was uh, well you know there's a lot of money from the outside that moves through the Vatican uh, you know dioceses and religious orders and catholic organization that comes in and out Uh, we think our risk is mostly from the outside, not from the inside. To which Moneyball's answer was, how about no? Uh, Because, they pointed out, that assessment came at the same time that the London financial scandal was was breaking, uh, in which it is alleged uh, that senior officials inside the Vatican were complicit uh, in financial irregularities, uh, and that comes on top of any number of other similar scenarios that have unfolded under the years, including one that is coming to light right now, uh, similar to the London deal, involving the purchase of real estate in Budapest uh, by the Vatican. Uh, and basically, Moneyball said, we think you are significantly underestimating the risk that insiders will engage in corrupt activity for personal gain or other reasons. Uh, the other area uh, in which Moneyball took the Vatican to task uh, was its judiciary. It basically said that the number of indictments, prosecutions, and convictions for financial crime is underwhelming, uh, and that the penalties imposed have been so minimal uh, as, to be, as to have no deterrent value whatsoever. Uh, and so basically it's saying uh, everything now looks great on the books, uh, but we need to see it working in action. We need more of that. Uh, remains to be seen uh, whether indictments in the London case will be delivered and a trial convened in the near future. Moneyball report said they were told it would be done this summer. Well, it is this summer. No developments on that front to date. We will see. Now, just two days after the Moneyball report came out, the Vatican Bank, which, by the way, is not actually a bank, Okay, there, there really is no such thing called the Vatican Bank. What we call the Vatican Bank is more akin to a kind of central bank that conducts transactions on behalf of its sovereign authority, that is the Pope. Uh, and on the client side, it's more like an investment fund that manages the assets of religious orders and dioceses and other Catholic entities tries to invest them to get a decent return in an ethically responsible ways. It, this is not a bank. It's not like you know, you and I could stroll into a teller at the Vatican Bank today and open an account. It just, it, it's not that. But uh, that ship has sailed. Technically it's called the Institute for the Works of Religion. Everybody calls it the Vatican Bank. That's probably not gonna change. So Vatican Bank put out its annual financial report This year, uh, for the ninth consecutive year, by the way, this year, the report ran to 134 pages, providing a very detailed breakdown of the assets controlled by the bank, uh, who its clients are, where its money goes, what kind of return on investment they're earning, where it's invested, and so forth and so on. This report, by the way, uh, was independently, externally audited, and the financial report contains a letter from the external auditor certifying the accuracy of the report. Now, compare that to the fact that the Vatican last year, for the first time since Pope Francis was elected, Actually got its act together and put out a financial statement that financial statement was four pages and it included a lot of pie charts and graphs Uh, It was not externally audited and certified so you can think what you want about its credibility It was better than nothing but it wasn't very much at all compared to what the Vatican Bank has been doing for almost a decade. This is because the Vatican Bank was the first institution to be targeted for a cleanup operation under Pope Benedict. He he brought in new leadership. He he ordered them to get rid of all these phony baloney sort of you know quasi-secret accounts that Italian fat cats had. Uh, it was subjected to professional management today, Virtually everybody would say the Vatican Bank is the cleanest institution among the the Vatican's various financial centers. And if you think about its history, I mean, just think about the way the Vatican Bank is portrayed in Godfather III, right? I mean, guys found hanging under bridges in London and mob ties and all this other stuff. Uh, The fact that the Vatican Bank could engage in such a thorough cleanup in less than a decade means that it's possible any place and therefore a serious question mark has to be placed on these other financial, scan, uh, financial centers in the Vatican and why they can't get their act together in the same way that the Vatican Bank has. All right, on POTUS and the pontiff. So this is a big week for American journalists in Europe because uh, POTUS, the President of the United States, is on this side of the Atlantic. Over the weekend, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, was in England, Southern England, Cornwall, uh, for a summit G7 nations. Today, he is in Europe. He is in Brussels for a NATO summit. Then he will be taking part in a U.S.-EU summit. Along the way, there are two highly anticipated meetings that the president will be, hel- will be holding, one with Turkish President Recep Erdogan, the other in Geneva with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Both are likely to be tra- uh, fraught. Relations between the US and Turkey and the US and Russia uh, have been strained of late. Uh, will be very interesting to see how those meetings play out. It had been rumored, earlier in in the spring, that when President Biden was in Europe, there might also be a summit with Pope Francis. As it turns out, that is not happening. What the White House is now saying is that the President has already confirmed that he will be coming to Rome in late October, it's October 30th and 31st, for a G20 summit. And it is widely assumed, though not yet officially confirmed, that the President and the Pope uh, will meet then. Now, one thing that will be interesting to follow between now and then, is whether by the time President Biden gets here, there will be a new ambassador to the Vatican to greet him and to organize uh, his, his meeting with uh, Pope Francis. To date, President Biden has not even named his designee as ambassador to the Vatican. And although that's not unprecedented, things have stretched into June before with incoming administrations. There is a kind of tick-tock dynamic going on uh, because if the president wants that ambassador to have undergone his or her hearings in the Senate uh, and to be slated for a confirmation vote, to have presented his or her credentials to the Pope and therefore to be in the saddle, when Biden gets here in late October. uh, The clock is ticking. It will be a very interesting nomination. Uh, Democratic administrations typically have a problem. The U.S. has a custom that not every nation in the world shares. In fact, the majority don't. But the U.S. custom, uh, at least heretofore since 1984, when diplomatic relations were established under President Reagan, the U.S. custom has been that the ambassador to the Vatican has to be a Catholic. Now, if you're a Democrat, what kind of Catholic Democrat are you going to get? Are you going to name a pro-choice Catholic Democrat who therefore would be consistent with your own party's positions, uh, but from the outset would either be blackballed by the Vatican or at least would have a strained relationship with the Vatican and also would be deeply controversial domestically? Uh, Or uh, are you going to look for somebody who just doesn't have a track record Uh, on these issues, who's kind of innocuous, uh, who would avoid a headache, but potentially be politically inconsequential. Uh, That tends to be the dilemma every Democrat faces. One imagines President Biden uh, as just the country's second Roman Catholic president, and also somebody who takes his Catholicism seriously, who takes the relationship with the Vatican seriously, is trying to, to thread that needle very carefully but maybe running out of time to try to get it done if he wants this relationship to be on a solid footing when he does finally meet Pope Francis face-to-face. All right, finally this week, tomorrow, Tuesday, marks the 546th anniversary of the foundation of the Vatican Library in 1457 under Pope, uh, 1475 rather, excuse me, under Pope Sixtus IV, making it an august occasion for the Vatican Library by any measure. But in particular, I think it is worth just sort of taking a brief look back at the man Pope Sixtus IV chose to become the very first prefect of the Vatican Library. He was an Italian layman by the name of Bartolomeo Sacchi, who was better known to his contemporaries by his Latin nom de plume, uh, Platina. Uh, pope Sixtus was very much uh, in the, the, a pope of the early Renaissance. Uh, he was a great patron of the arts, a great patron of learning, and therefore it was natural for him to turn as head of the Vatican Library to a figure who already had a reputation as a great humanist. Uh, somebody who was part of a group called the Roman Academy of Intellectuals, writers uh, who had taken on Latin appellations uh, as a kind of bit of homage uh, to the classical period that they were attempting to revitalize. Now, there are two things, I think, that make Sacchi's story, the very first head of the Vatican Library, that make his story particularly, well, appetizing. One uh, is that he was named uh, in 1478, 1477, I forget, uh, but around there. Just a decade before, in 1468, uh, he had been accused of taking part in a plot to assassinate Pope Sixtus the Pope Fourth's predecessor, Pope Paul II. Uh, Saki, along with other alleged co-conspirators, was arrested tossed into the papal prison in the castle San Angelo, spent a year there being interrogated and tortured, lost sensation uh, in one of his arms, wrote these letters describing the hell he was living. Uh, Finally, and we don't really know whether it was due to the influence of senior clergy who were friends or whether Pope Paul II simply changed his mind, but finally, finally, Uh, Saki was released, but sent into exile and was definitely on the outs. Now, less than a decade later, he's back in favor at the the papal court. He's a bosom buddy of the new pope, uh, and he's getting a sweet gig as the head of the Vatican Library, which he held basically for the rest of his career. Now, moral of this story is that in the Catholic Church, as in other walks of life, a there are no permanent friends and no permanent enemies, and B, there is nothing new under the sun. You know, a lot of people have been stunned under Pope Francis about how guys who seemed like they were on the outs under Popes John Paul and Benedict, guys like uh, Cardinal Rodriguez Maradiaga of Honduras or Cardinal Caspar of Germany, how they've been rehabilitated. Well, if you think what happened to them Uh, is dramatic. I mean, think about a guy who was actually accused of wanting to kill a pope, thrown into a papal jail, and tortured by papal officials, and then a few years later, uh, you know, he's a senior Vatican official living the high life. I mean, it just goes to show you, don't assume that any situation in the church is permanent because things can always change. Second, Thing that makes Tosaki's story interesting. In addition to being head of the Vatican Library, he was also the author of the most wildly successful popular cookbook of his age. Uh, Bartolomeo Saki was kind of the Gordon Ramsay of his time. He wrote this, uh, this cookbook that sold, it was actually the first cookbook ever to be reproduced on a mechanical printing press, uh, sold untold numbers of copies uh, all across Europe. Uh, And the personality that comes across uh, is this kind of brash, uh, catty, vindictive, irascible showman. Uh, And it, it just then as now, people ate it up. Moral of this story, at all points of Catholic history, food and faith have been absolutely and inextricably intertwined. Bartolomeo Saki thought that there was nothing strange about being an expert in ecclesiastical history and in gastronomy at the same time. And frankly, as someone who has lived in Italy for more than 20 years now, I don't think there's anything off about that at all. Uh, In fact, uh, I think food and faith are two peas in the same glorious and delicious pod. All right, that is our show for this week. We will be here next Monday, same bat time, same Bat channel. In the meantime, you can find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about on the crux site that is cruxnow.com cruxnow.com. Uh, when you go on, you will find we are in the middle of our online fundraising drive. If you can help us out, we would be eternally grateful. What we're really looking for are people willing to make a small but stable monthly commitment to Crux. Doesn't have to be much. Maybe what you would spend this month on a cup of coffee, on streaming a movie, whatever it is. But that stability uh, is precious. It gives us the ability to plan. And remember, uh, independence, the kind of independence that we practice is priceless, but it's not free. we need your help to pay for it. Also, if you like this show, Please go online, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet. Go on the social media platform of your choice and make disciples of all the nations. We need your help to spread the word and to expand our audience. All right. Have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We will see each other next Monday. We will talk to you soon.